0: so this evening i'd like to continue with our exploration of these 10 parami and the parami being these very highly skillful qualities of heart and mind and they're qualities that powerfully support our meditation practice to deepen and we'll be moving through them quite quickly but i plan to loop back to many of them in future talks And as we've been discovering, each of these qualities is supported by all the others. In fact, they depend on each other to be true parami, spiritual powers, and not just a nice quality of character. And this might be especially true of this next parami, which is wisdom, or panya. And it's wisdom that makes sure that all the other parami are guided in the right direction. So, for example, if you remember back to my first talk on the parami of generosity, there we want to bring awareness to the circumstances and the context of our giving, including our motivations, because it's all of that that makes sure it's a parami and not just a conventional offering of a donation. Or even worse... Is become foolish generosity, so giving in a way that actually harms ourselves or maybe harms the other. So wisdom helps protect the parami um, and keep them in the right direction. Now wisdom is really crucial for all of the parami. So you might wonder, like I did, well, why is it fourth on the list and not first? Because you, you know, in some ways, you'd think it surely it should be first. And I'll come back to that in a little while. But first, I'm going to kind of meander through some of these questions. And I want to again acknowledge that there's a significant difference between what the Buddha understood as wisdom and maybe some of our more mainstream understandings of what wisdom is. So it's a very broad generalization. I think in mainstream society, wisdom is either conflated with factual knowledge. Or it's seen as something lofty and remote, esoteric, unattainable. So we have that cliched image of the guru or the swami or the zen hermit sitting alone on the mountainside, something removed and remote. And when I first started exploring these teachings, I still remember a single phrase in a Dharma book that I was reading. And it just lit up a lot of light bulbs for me. And that phrase was, there's knowledge, and then there's understanding. And up until that point, I hadn't realized there was a difference. <laughs> I'd unconsciously assumed that being wise meant somehow cramming my mind with all of these facts and abstract concepts and then being able to argue with experts about whatever the topic was. But that statement, there is wisdom, sorry, there is knowledge, and then there's understanding, I realized that actually what I'd really been interested in was the knowledge, the understanding more than the knowledge. Does that distinction make sense to you? And that's not to say that knowledge isn't useful. Of course it is. But it's even more powerful if it's grounded in understanding And what this is pointing to is that there are different levels or modes of wisdom. And importantly, that wisdom is available to every one of us. And for me at least, this is another of the radical aspects of the Buddha's teachings. Wisdom is a quality that can be cultivated. It can be consciously developed and strengthened. And it's definitely a process And one of the challenges of translating the Pali word panya as wisdom is that in English, wisdom is a noun. It's a static quality. And then we can tend to think it's something we either have or we don't. And there's a common belief that some people are just somehow born wise and many others just aren't. (laughs) So speaking for myself, when I first heard these teachings that wisdom was something we can actually develop, I found it very inspiring and empowering. So in English, wisdom is a noun, and it can sound like a fixed thing that we have to get. And this is what I used to think wisdom meant, pumping all those facts into my brain, arranging them into complicated ideas. But by comparison, the Pali word panya more literally means to know correctly, to know correctly. So here it's a verb, it's not a noun. And to me, at least, trying to know something correctly seems more achievable than trying to be wise. Because knowing is something we can do, something we can train in. So how do we do wisdom? How do we train ourselves in that discernment? Now, in the Buddha's teachings, there are three distinct stages or levels. The first is wisdom acquired through learning. Learning. And then there's wisdom acquired through reflection. And then wisdom acquired through meditation. And the first level, wisdom acquired through learning, is the understanding that comes from hearing the teachings or reading books or being given instructions by a teacher. And it's sometimes also known as borrowed understanding because we get it from someone else. We get it from the outside And while this level of wisdom can definitely inspire us to follow a spiritual path, in and of itself, it doesn't usually lead to deeper understanding and to freedom. Now, in the Zen tradition, these three levels of wisdom are seen as happening on three different levels of the body. So the first level of understanding, the borrowed wisdom, is associated with the head. It's more of an intellectual knowledge, and it hasn't yet translated into wise action. And just to get a sense of that, I think most of us here understand that it's probably wise to refrain from doing certain things, and yet sometimes we do them anyway. Or is it just me? So there's a wisdom that goes, oh, you know, you probably, oh, well, never mind that's because the intellectual wisdom hasn't matured or ripened into a more embodied understanding so with time with practice that more intellectual understanding ripens or deepens to the next level which is wisdom acquired through reflection and this comes from contemplating a teaching for ourselves trying it out in the context of our own lives to see, is it actually true or not? And then it matures into a more applied wisdom, and it's not just theoretical anymore. And just to say, especially, I think, in mainstream society, this level of understanding isn't so easy, because we are so conditioned to value the intellect more than practical life experience. And... Again, in my own practice, it was quite a long time before I stopped listening to Dharma talks, especially on retreat, as if they were just high school classes of downloading information or as if they were kind of bedtime stories at the end of a long day of meditation practice. It took me a long time to realize, ah, the teachers are actually not just giving me some nice ideas to think about, They're asking us to actually do something to put these ideas into practice. And it's actually this trying out, testing, engaging with these dharma ideas in our lived experience that brings them to life and starts the process of genuine transformation. So metaphorically, in terms of the body, this is when the intellectual knowledge moves down from the head into the heart. And it starts to become a more embodied understanding. So now we're starting to live by that wisdom, and it starts to be expressed in our everyday lives. And because it's now in the heart, we could stretch the metaphor and say it has a little more warmth to it. It's not the cold, analytical, logical, rational wisdom that tends to come from book knowledge. But the process doesn't stop there as we continue exploring these teachings, particularly in the context of meditation, and particularly on retreat or when we're doing more intensive meditation, the mind can become incredibly still, quiet, clear. And then some of those deeper truths and understandings, those insights that the Dharma is pointing to, start to bubble up into our awareness and start to be fed back into how we live our lives. And so this level of wisdom is in the Zen tradition even further down the body, and it's in the gut, or you could say in the bones. Because in English we talk about knowing something in our gut or knowing something in our bones. And both of these imply that that understanding is so fully embodied that it's no longer something we even have to think about, It's just a natural expression of who we are. So at this stage, the wisdom has become so thoroughly integrated that it's just inherent in everything that we think and say and do. Now, hopefully that's not sounding too (laughs) lofty even at this point. I like to keep in mind that all of us here we're already going through this process, or you wouldn't be here tonight. All of you already have some degree of wisdom that has brought you here and is developing. And I think it's important to reflect on all of us as significantly wiser than we were before we started exploring this path, before we started meditating. <laughs> And for those of you who've been on retreat, I'm guessing, or done more intensive practice at home, not necessarily on retreat, you may have had an experience of just meditating, and then suddenly, as they say in English, the penny drops, and you go, oh, wow, oh, that's what they mean by X. Wow, now I really get it. And then you carry on with your meditation practice, maybe a few months go by, maybe a year goes by, And then you go, wow, oh my goodness, that was nothing. Now I really understand it. This is amazing. What was I thinking? (laughs) Now I've really got it. And then what happens? (laughs) Yes, a couple of months, maybe a year later, we're on retreat or doing more intensive practice at home, and boom, whoa far out. <laughs> what was I thinking? What I saw before? That was nothing. But now I really, really get it. Anyone recognize anything like that? No? Not yet? At some point it will happen. But this is, be- this is the beginning of the process. Drop by drop these things come in. And it's a sign that this process is developing of its own accord almost. So just circling back to that point that in the Buddhist teachings, this wisdom is not something remote, lofty, esoteric, inaccessible. It's intended to have immediate and practical benefits. And so I think actually this is why wisdom is the fourth parami, because it becomes after the first three, which are about how we live our lives. So, remembering the first three are generosity, commitment to non-harming or ethical conduct, and renunciation. Very good renunciation. Usually, people quietly forget about that one. So, those three together—they're really inviting us to look at how we're we acting in the world, how we're we behaving, how we're we showing up. And when we pay close attention to that, when we develop them as parami, what we see we start to understand very directly is what kind of actions and behavior leads to harm for ourselves, for others, for the environment, and what kind of actions, behavior leads to happiness and are beneficial for ourselves, others, the environment. So what we start to see in investigating our life like that is there's a very direct cause and effect relationship. And that motivates us to deepen our understanding even more because we've experienced the benefits that come from living with more care, more clarity, more consciousness. So there's a close connection between wisdom and this willingness to investigate, to examine, to look at what we're doing, why we're doing it, how we're doing it, and what the results of our actions are investigate are they beneficial or not. And again, another aspect of the Buddha's teachings that's radical is that we need to work this out for ourselves. There are guidelines that the Buddha offered, but there is no external authority or book of commandments or rules that tells us exactly what to do in every situation. So this wisdom has to be developed internally in every one of us through testing out these teachings in our own lives. And the Buddha was very explicit about this in a famous discourse he gave to a group of people known as the Kalama. Any of you know that sutta? Kalama sutta? Yeah, a few. It's quite a famous one because it really appeals to Western individualism. So according to the sutta, the Buddha came to uh, the Kalama people of Kesaputta and they complained to the buddha that their town was visiting by, was being visited by all these different kinds of spiritual teachers different lineages and traditions who were giving them conflict, who were giving them completely conflicting teachings and the kalamas complained that these teachers expound and glorify their own doctrines But as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them and disparage them. And then other Brahmins and contemplatives come to Kesaputta, and they expound and glorify their own doctrines. But again, as for the doctrines of others, they deprecate them, revile them, show contempt for them, disparage them. And they leave us absolutely uncertain and in doubt Which of these venerable Brahmins and contemplatives are speaking the truth? And which ones are lying? So maybe you can relate to that. You know, these days there are so many different traditions and teachings and everything's available on YouTube and Dharma Seed and all the different apps. How do you know which ones are useful? So how do we know what's true, what's wise? and the buddha responded to the kalama's questions by giving a whole list of conventional ways that we might decide what's true and what isn't so he said you know sometimes people think something's true because it agrees with our pre-existing views anybody had that one <laughs> or it seems logical or it comes from a long-standing tradition Or perhaps because it's a sense of our teacher said it and we want our teacher to be right. But the Buddha refuted all of those ways of working out the truth. And he said, instead, you have to try out the teachings in the context of your own lives to see if in that context they lead to welfare and happiness or not. So he said, don't go by reports, by legend, by tradition, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering of views, by probability or by the thought, this contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these qualities are unskillful, these qualities are blameworthy these qualities are criticized by the wise, and these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. But when you know for yourselves that these qualities are skillful, blameless, praised by the wise, these qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. So this is a well-known sutta because, as I said, it's reassuring for people who are steeped in very individualistic values that we're just invited to find out for ourselves how to practice. But what's sometimes overlooked is this reference to the wise. It says, when we know that these teachings are praised by the wise, then we can follow them. So there is a safeguard. It's not just working out, oh, this feels good, I think I'll go there we do have some reference point to people who have more understanding than us. And that's why connecting with a sangha, with a community like this, and developing wise friends and having contact with teachers is emphasized all through the teachings. So we don't just go with the flow of mainstream values, but we really search and work out for ourselves, is this leading to my welfare and happiness or not? And if it is, go ahead. So again, the emphasis here is on investigation, not just being told what to do and sort of blindly doing it. And in the Buddha's teachings, this investigation is incredibly comprehensive, holistic. So there's a powerful discourse where the Buddha's talking to his own son, Rahula, who he had ordained as a a monastic. And the backstory is that apparently Rahula had deliberately told a lie (laughs) And so the Buddha asked to speak with him and was giving him some pretty detailed instructions on how to kind of clean up his act, so to speak. And he begins by using the analogy of a mirror. What do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? For reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. And then he goes on to encourage Rahula to reflect on anything he's about to do before he actually does it. So he says, whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both? would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results? If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you realize it would not cause affliction, it will be a skillful bodily action with pleasant consequences and pleasant results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. Then he goes on and says exactly the same thing in relation to actions of speech and actions of mind. And then he goes through... While you're doing those things, and then he goes through again after you have done them. And so if the action ended up causing harm, then it needs to be acknowledged, and a commitment made to not doing it and not doing it again in the future. But if the action didn't cause any harm, then it was a skillful bodily action with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful training day and night in skillful mental qualities. So there's happiness that comes from all of that. I edited that discourse down into kind of the bare minimum, but what is significant to me is it's so comprehensive. Reflect before, reflect during, reflect after, reflect on bodily action, reflect on verbal action, speech, reflect on your thinking Usually in the West, we don't think so much about our thinking, it's how we behave. But all of our actions come from thoughts, so we definitely want to be exploring. This is why we put so much emphasis on mental training. So reflect on what we're doing, saying thinking on three timescales, before, during, after. And if that isn't comprehensive enough, what's the effect on us? What's the effect on others? What's the effect on both? And as I've been adding, what's the effect on the environment? So anyone feeling a bit daunted? (laughs) Yes. I wonder where spontaneity comes in. (laughs) Well, I would say when wisdom is fully embodied... Anything we do is emerging spontaneously from that intuitive embodied wisdom. And when it's not, that's when we have to really think, okay, what am I doing? So I'll just bracket that as a a temporary response. Because what I think it's important to remember is that all of this is leading to our own well-being, happiness, and freedom. And when we investigate with clear seeing, with wisdom, we start to recognize that wherever we want to hide, wherever we don't really want to look, wherever we tend to shut down, wherever we want to stay cozily in our comfort zones, that's often where harm is being done to ourselves, to others, to the environment. It might be a more insidious kind of harm, like the infamous frog in boiling water syndrome, but it's still suffering. And if we have some commitment to waking up and seeing clearly, to living with more wisdom and compassion, we need to bring all ten of these parami together, so it strengthens our capacity to do that. So if you're feeling a little like, whoa, that's a, a tall order, as well as bringing in wisdom, we might need to bring in the parami of resolve or determination, which includes courage. We might need to bring in the parami of kindness, metta for ourselves and for others as we struggle with these challenges of being human. We might need to bring in the parami of patience, understanding that this is a gradual process, a gradual training. And we might need to bring in the parami of equanimity, that acceptance and profound steadiness that keeps us on course, even through the ups and downs and the success and failure. So hopefully that's encouraging to recognize this is a gradual, organic unfolding And as I keep (coughs) emphasizing for every one of us here, this process has already begun. And hopefully, (coughs) I think all of you are already seeing those many benefits. So I think that's probably enough for now because I'd really like to hear from all of you how you all are already experiencing the benefits of wisdom. So thank you for your attention. Okay. (laughs)